This morning's scripture passage is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. If you wish, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and it's on page 1351 in that Bible. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Lord, when we undertake a text like this on a morning like this, we feel very inadequate and are eager now and much in need of your enabling grace to handle this text in a way that fits with its tenor as well as its content. And so I pray for ears to hear and a mind and a heart to speak that will capture both. Lord, these are weighty things we're about here. And I pray that you would make them plain and that you would work in the hearts of your people to make this experience of body, life, a reality for us as church. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm remaining in my book, Romans, though I'm departing from the sequence in Romans 1 where we've been these past months together because this Sunday of small group Focus and recruitment is so important to us as a church. So I'm going to go over to chapter 12 and focus especially on verses 3 through 8 of this text. And let me tell you why or how I see it in regard to the bigger picture of this church. We're persuaded as elders, and if you wonder who I mean... When I say elders, they're all listed on the back of your worship folder there. About 18 of them are listed there. We're persuaded that in living the Christian life, something like a small group experience is essential, not optional. Structures don't have to be identical. The history of the church has seen all kinds of togetherness. We're not trying to idealize any particular form, but something like a small group togetherness of interaction with exercise of gifts and love to one another to build each other up and help each other through the hard times is essential. Can't live the Christian life as God means it to be lived 
without it. A second thing we're persuaded about is that the oversight or the shepherding of the flock of thirteen or fourteen hundred people here is especially the responsibility of the overseers slash elders slash pastors, all the same in New Testament language. In other words, we believe in the priesthood of all believers and we believe in oversight by the elders. And those two convictions biblically intersect in various ways. And one of the ways that they intersect is in this structure called small groups so that the elders are convicted that it is their calling to oversee small group leaders. There are about 61 small groups who then have taken it upon themselves under the call of God to bless in the elders and with a sense of prayer and humility to facilitate 12, 15, 8, however many people will gather with them to do to each other the work of the ministry. So the priesthood of the believers is where the ministry happens. Ministry belongs to the people. The elders exist to protect, to feed, and to guide the flock. And to, in all of that, liberate and empower and release people to minister to one another. So that if, if the mindset exists, when I have a problem, a faith problem or a money problem or a health problem, there are nine pastors in this church and one of them's got to help me. If that's your mindset, you're going to be in for great discouragements, and so are we. Rather, we must believe that the, the work of the overseers is to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. So we spend a lot of energy thinking and praying and working and structuring so as to create this kind of thing, which is imperfect for sure, but the best we know how to get at shepherding a large group of people like this. That's what's behind this morning. That's what's behind the selection of this text this morning. Now, the first thing I want to do with it is connect it to the previous weeks. I don't want you to feel like, good grief, this thing just dangles out there and, and uh, there's no connection with what he's been doing for all these weeks in Romans 1, especially verses 16 to 18. Here's the connection as I see it. We've been talking about the glorious gospel of the gift of righteousness from God to sinners like us, which is our only hope for our right standing with God. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. God is holy. There's this terrible rupture and cleavage and alienation and animosity between us. A holy God cannot truck with people like us. So what hope is there? Only one. If God would give the righteousness to us, which he demands from us, because we can't produce what he demands. We are so corrupt and so sinful, we'll never muster up enough goodness out of our own selves to be what we ought to be. We must have it as a free gift. And that's what Romans 1, 16 and 17 are about. The gospel of that good news is the power of God unto salvation. But now here's the danger. Somebody hearing all that glorious good news might say, all right, I'm a sinner and I must repent 
and I must believe and I must be justified and I must personally have a guilt-freeing connection with Christ, the living God, and be saved. I, 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 I never weep. In other words, it is possible to construe all of that good news so individualistically that the church never even comes into play. That's why the book of Romans is bigger than just a few chapters. Chapter 12 is in the book. And it's in the book to make this point. Being connected with Christ so that we have His righteousness means being connected with the body of Christ. If you're connected with Jesus, you're connected with the people of Jesus. Now, here's the warrant for saying that. In Romans 8.1, it says, now this is built on Romans 1.16 and 17, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are, finish it for me, in Christ Jesus. Now, go to the text with me in chapter 12 and uh, look at verses 4 and 5. And you'll see this phrase and how it connects with the body. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. There it is. So we have no condemnation in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we are one body. And then the next phrase, and individually members one of another. Now consider this, because I fear that in America, which is a very individualistic land, we make things happen. We're individuals, rugged individualism, part of our heritage. It's not all bad. We must individually relate to God. We do have individual responsibilities when everybody else may be doing other than what we should do. But it's also got a side to it that makes us negligible or negligent of the church, the body, the, the, the relatedness of, of life. Well, this phrase, individually, members of one another, is a stunning phrase. You see what that means? It goes beyond saying, hmm, okay. You're a member of Christ, justified in Him by His righteousness, and I'm a member of Christ, justified by His righteousness, so we are both members of the same Christ. It goes beyond that, doesn't it? It says, and because of that, you are now individually members of one another, which means, it's, take my two arms here, this arm is a part of this body. And this arm is a part of this body. But the text says, this arm is a member of this arm. And you can see that easily by cutting yourself. And if you start to bleed real badly, and it keeps bleeding and bleeding, this arm is not going to say to this arm, that's your problem. Because this arm shares the same blood and the same heart that this arm does. And if this arm bleeds to death, so does this one. 
That's the point of the body analogy. Or to put it in a positive light, if this arm is strong and it's feeding this mouth, this arm says, thank you. Because the same nourishment that this arm is providing to this body supplies this arm. That's what Paul has in his mind when he's thinking of this body analogy of the church. So he goes way beyond just kind of a general, you're part of Christ and you're part of Christ, so you're part of the same thing out there. He goes on with this amazing phrase, individually members one of another. So I just commend... I commend to you this tremendous significance of your salvation. Belonging to Christ is the only way you'll be saved. Union with Jesus by faith means union with God and His righteousness freely given to us. That's the only way a sinner can be saved. But now we see Him saying, if you're in Christ and thus saved... You are, it's a fact, it's a reality, you are united with other believers, members one of another. You can't opt out of one of those. That's the surprising and shocking and stunning thing that Americans need to hear. You can't opt out of one of those. You can't say, I take Christ, not the church. Or I take the church and not Christ. It's both or neither. To be in Christ is to be justified by His blood. And to be in Christ is to be members with the other members who are in Christ. You can't separate the church and justification. There's a profound connection here to what we've been saying and what I'm saying today. So if the church has been low in your priorities in recent years, I'm pleading with you this morning to make it a higher priority for your own soul's sake. Now, why would God set it up this way? Why would He elevate the stakes so highly that to be saved, to be justified, to be united with Christ and reconciled to God necessarily means being involved as members with other people? Why would He do that? Why is it so part and parcel of each other? Now, here's the answer I want to suggest to you in Romans 15, 5 to 7, which we'll use to come back and relate to this text. If you want to look at it with me, Romans 15, 5, 6 and 7 say, Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same Mind with one another. So he's concerned about the body here. He's concerned about unity. He's concerned about thinking similar thoughts and having common convictions and loving one another in harmony. Same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Why? So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And then he says it again, this issue of the glory of God being at stake. Verse 7. Therefore, accept one another. Did anybody hurt your feelings this morning? Did anybody say something to you that discouraged you this morning? Did somebody ignore you this morning? Did they just walk by you? And you're feeling down right now? In fact, you've hardly been able to participate in worship because you just keep playing that... That sentence down at the nursery, maybe it was a harsh word. or 
or in Sunday school or in the parking lot or I thought they were my friend and they didn't even see me. Is that happening right now? If it is, look at verse 7 and the implication. Jesus understands that. That happened to him. People ignored him. People said awful things to Jesus. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ accepted us. And he means when we were enemies to the glory of God. You see, it's easy to be a loner. I mean, hard in one sense. Sure, you get lonely. But it's, it's easy not to deal with people who let you down. You just want to stay away. You know, listen to the radio or watch TV or walk in the woods. Anything but have to go back and deal with those kinds of people because that's hard. But if, if small groups, if church life, according to these verses, 7 and 6 and 7, are all about the glory of God, with one accord to the glory of God, accepting one another with all our flaws and failures and going back and trying to make it right, all to the glory of God. If, if the glory of God is at stake, it's a big deal. It's not something you can just lick your wounds and go away from and say, well, if that's the way they want to treat me, I won't be a part of that fellowship anymore. There are so many people who are walking away from the church with those kinds of feelings today. I was talking with one of them by email this week who quit church, just quit church and listens to my tapes. I'm so discouraged. And I wrote him back and I said something to him on the tape and he's probably listened to this tape now. I mean, I don't know which tape they're going to send out. But I just say earnestly, go back to church. This is what I wrote. I said, look, there aren't any perfect churches. You, you don't have the option of dropping out of the body of Christ. You can't be isolated and play church with a tape recorder. It won't work. And I'm, I, it, it grieves me that my own sermons become the warrant for that kind of thing. And so I say it to you. It doesn't have to be Bethlehem. We're not a perfect church for sure. But it needs to be some body, and in the body it needs to be some kind of small togetherness where you minister to one another, striving for the glory of God. So I think verses 6 and 7 of Romans 15 give the why, ultimately, of unity and why it's more important. See, I can imagine somebody saying, look, wouldn't God get more glory if it was just me and God? I depend on Him. He helps me. And I don't have to lean like a crutch on all you other people. I mean, aren't you saying that in the body, we lean on each other, depend on each other's gifts and encouragements instead of leaning on God? And so wouldn't God get more glory if we were just isolated, separate individuals, wholly relying on Jesus alone? To you be the glory. Why isn't that a logical position? It isn't logical because it's easier to live that way. It takes more grace and more glory for a diverse group to live together in harmony than it does for individuals to go away and get right with God by themselves. More grace, believe me. If you're older than, say, five years old, you know this. That human beings are hard to get along with. There aren't any other kind. Sooner or later, the ones you like best, your pastor, will let you down. 
We must depend on the Lord so that he gets the glory in the life of small groups. So let me draw out a couple of things from this text on the basis of that observation. That the glory of God from Romans 15, 6 and 7 is the ultimate reason why a life together in the church is essential. Now, the two things I want to draw out of Romans 12, 3 to 8 are this. The gifts of God, which you all have, you have varied gifts, and the faith to use those gifts are both a work of God's grace so that God will get the glory. That's the point I want to make in the rest of this message. Let me do it first by stating a principle. The principle is this. The giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. I get that from 1 Peter 4, 11, which goes like this. Whoever serves, let him do so in the strength which God supplies, the giver, so that in all things God may be glorified. The giver gets the glory. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. So let me say it again. This principle governs all I do at Bethlehem. This is one of the most important ministerial philosophy verses in my whole battery of verses. Let him who serves, that's me, that's you, in every kind of service you do, parenting, befriending, small group, study, anything you do. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. The giver gets the glory. You get the help. You get the joy. You get the blessing. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. He gets the honor. That's the way God set up the universe. Now, with that principle, we come to this text looking to see how it works out in relation to gifts, gifts, the giver, and faith to use the gifts. So let's take gifts first and look at verse 3. Paul says concerning his own testimony of grace, grace being the source of gifts. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now just stop there and ponder Paul's testimony. Paul says, here I am writing a letter as an apostle to you. Isn't that presumptuous? He really felt this way because you remember back in chapter 1 verse 12 when he said, I want to come there and minister a gift to you. He qualified it quickly and said, I mean in order that we might be mutually encouraged in our faith. He's so conscious that he could be perceived as lording it over the churches in an inappropriate way and misusing his apostolic authority. So here he says, it's through the grace given to me that I'm speaking to you. I'm not just presuming to write a letter. I don't just sit down and say, do this, church at Rome. He sits and God has called him irresistibly. Remember on the Damascus road with this shocking light and I make you mine and I turn you around and I fill you with my spirit and I tell you how much you're going to have to suffer for me. And Paul says, I'm a debtor. Woe to me if I don't write to the Romans. This is grace upon me. I cannot. I cannot take this off any more than I can take my skin off. Grace is on me to be an apostle and write to you. So he's giving God the the credit. Now that's his testimony. Now he bends it out to us in verse 6. And says the same thing about our gifts. And believe me, everybody in this room has a gift. Or two or three, and sometimes you'll have a different one one week than you had the other week. 
I don't think gifts are just kind of locked in so you have the same one forever and ever and ever and ever. Varied spiritual gifts land on you from time to time for the ministry that you're in at the moment. You're on some difficult phone call and suddenly there's a gift of wisdom. Or in another situation, a gift of healing. In another situation, other kinds of gifts. And we're dependent on the Lord. My definition of spiritual gift is um, some peculiar capacity unique to you for channeling grace to another person. A peculiar capacity unique to you. It may look very similar to what others do. I mean, a lot of people preach, for example. A lot of people pray for healing. But your personality, your language, your words, your feeling, your heart, your mind, everything about you is totally unique. And that's meant to be a channel of grace in varied situations. That's your gift at that moment. You, anointed by God, granted a gift, bending the flow of grace down through your heart out to other people so that they are benefited, even if it is simply a confession of your own weakness. That's a grace. That's a gift. Now, verse 6. All of us have this, but where did it come from? Since we have gifts... That differ according to the grace given to us. There it is again. You see that phrase, according to the grace given to us, is virtually the same as what he said in verse 3 about his own ministry, through the grace given to me. So verse 3, through the grace given to me, I speak to you, and you all, according to the grace given to you, minister to each other your gifts. So my first point from these verses, to the glory of God in small groups, is... All of you have got gifts, and they are the work of God's sovereign grace. You did not choose what your gift is. You didn't choose it. God chose it. It's an awesome thought that God shapes the church. God designs the church. We've been praying downstairs this morning about this sign-up for small groups. Just think of what's at stake here. Hundreds of people are going to be moving towards small groups in the next week. Who's going to put those together? Who's going to find themselves in the same group with this leader? And you might say, well, we're going to put them together. David Livingston's going to look at our list and he's going to pray and... Ah, but God's going to oversee this thing. He's going to oversee this thing and you're going to find yourselves together in groups with a few people you don't know, a few people you do know maybe. And that will be the work of God. Even if it doesn't go as well as you'd like, that's part of the design too. We need those kinds of experiences. God's at work here. God gives gifts and God designs the body in order that God may get the glory. Now, one last point. If God is going to really get all the glory in small groups and in the use of your gifts as you minister to one another, bear one another's burdens. I stood right here with the small group leaders a couple of Sundays ago in the evening and gave them ten things I learned about small group pastoral care when I was in the hospital a couple of weeks ago. And that's just one of the many, many blessings of being surrounded by a cluster of people who love you, care for you, feel accountable for you. When ten people come to visit you in the hospital in a day and a half, you know you've got a small group, you've got to care. That's one of the functions that they have. Now, if that's going to happen to the glory of God as we exercise gifts of care and love and support and admonition and rebuke and sustaining grace, we're going to have to, by faith, embrace our gifts and by faith, use our gifts. 
Now, at this point, I can imagine a person saying, okay, I see in the text that gifts are a work of grace. We didn't choose our gifts. They were given to us. But to use the gift, that's my job. And therefore, it falls to me to embrace the gift, exercise the gift, and bless people with the gift. And that's a half-truth. The half that is missing is at the end of verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So clearly he's concerned about pride here, isn't he? He's concerned about the use of gifts in a way that will puff you up. One of the things that can tend to puff us up is not only thinking that our gifts are self-wrought, which we now see they aren't, but that the faith to use them is self-wrought, which is what the next phrase is meant to eliminate. Rather, we are to think so as to have sound judgment. How's that? As God has allotted or measured out to each a measure of faith. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Not only are the gifts themselves a work of grace, but the varying measures of faith from week to week, whereby we receive the gift, carry the gift, use the gift, that too is a work of grace. God allots varying measures of faith to exercise the gift. And that's meant to exclude the final remnant of boasting. Because the person who says, okay, my gift is a, a work of grace, but my job is to use it. So the faith by which I use it must be my work. And so... I will get the credit for this and I may be proud of it. And this verse, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, is meant to put an end to that kind of pride and self-reliance. It would be now a great danger, wouldn't it? It is a great danger. For a person to say, oh, okay, my gift is not mine to get. It's given to me. And my faith by which I receive the gift and exercise the gift is not mine. So I'll just sit here and watch TV or take a walk by the lake. Because that's God's doing. Now, that's unbiblical and it's irrational. Let me point out those two as we close. Unbiblical and irrational. It's unbiblical because right here in the text, in verses 6 to 8, Paul says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If you've got the gift of prophecy, exercise it according to the proportion of faith. If you've got the gift of service, exercise it in your serving. If you've got the gift of teaching, exercise it in your teaching. He who exhorts 
Do it in your exhortation. He who gives, give liberally. He who leads, lead with diligence. He who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. In other words, don't let your gift lie dormant. Stir it up and resist passivity. So the biblical response to the gift of faith is to exercise the faith. It's a strange thing. It's a strange thing how people respond to the teachings of Scripture in this regard. What we need to say is this. Suppose you're tired on small group evenings. Suppose you're discouraged or anxious that it's not going to go well. And the flesh is rising and saying, sometimes it's been good, sometimes it's been boring and discouraging. I don't really feel like going tonight. How do you how do you respond to that? I think the text would say you've got a gift. Believe that now receive that by faith. You may not feel I don't feel like I've got any gift. That may be your gift tonight to say that. That may be your gift tonight to this group. They need somebody to be honest enough to say that. So you say, all right, I know there's a gift there. I don't know what it is. I just receive it, Lord. And I ask you now to give me the strength to go and to keep me depending on you as I go. And as I go, I just lay myself open to anything you want to do in me because I'm too tired. I'm too anxious and I'm too discouraged to think I could be of any use to anybody. And so here I go. And God will bless you. Oh, how he will bless you and others through you. If you lean not on your own gift and not on your own self and even not on your own faith, because that's the work of of God. Listen to Paul's testimony. This is first Corinthians 15. 10. I wish everybody knew it by heart. It goes like this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, It was not I, but the grace of God, which is with me. Isn't that marvelous? That's the Christian life in small groups and everywhere else. By the grace of God, I work. But once I've worked, I say, I didn't work. He worked by grace. It's wrong to say, Not I, but grace is an energy depleting sentence. Not I, but grace is not an energy depleting sentence. It's an energy giving sentence. And you can see it again in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ For this purpose, I labor, listen to him, resisting passivity. I labor, striving according to his power, which he mightily works within me. How does that feel? I labor, I strive with the power that he is pouring into me. So I declare it to be unbiblical. And irrational to say that because God works faith in us, we shouldn't exercise faith. 
What's the point in conclusion? The point is, God does not will his will instead of your willing. He wills his will in your willing. God does not work instead of your working. He works in and through your working. God does not energize us so that we don't have energy. He energizes us with his energy that it might be expressed in energy. It's all of grace. Is it not irrational, I ask you, to say, God enables us to trust in Him. Therefore, we don't need to trust in Him. That's irrational. God enables us to trust in Him. Therefore, we don't need to trust in Him. That's irrational. Because He enables us to trust, we may trust. And we do trust. I wonder how you pray. I wonder how you pray. I sat, I sat on the floor of my study for half an hour this morning between about 5.30 and 6 asking this very practical question. I said, Lord, I don't want this to land on our people as just an interesting exegetical observation. And so I sought my heart. I said, how do I pray for my own preaching, for my own ministry to the staff, for my own caring for elders and my children? How do I pray? And I may write the star article about it tonight. About six texts just tumble to my mind about prayer for faith. Prayer for faith. One of them was Luke 22:32, where Jesus looks at Peter when he's about to deny him. And Jesus says, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. I almost brought tears in my eyes this morning because I said, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, pray for me. And should we not pray like Jesus? Don't let my faith fail. Don't let my faith fail. I was at my dad's 80th anniversary of his birth and retirement two weeks ago. And I looked right at him. I just played with him. I said, Daddy, finish well. Finish well. He's healthy. He's strong. And there are very few who finish well. I pray for my dad's faith every day. And he's a mighty man of God. So I don't know. I don't know how you pray. But I just plead with you. Pray for your faith. So it's small group recruitment Sunday. And God has given everybody a gift. Receive your gift by faith. Ask God to sustain your faith. Make your faith strong. That you might go to those groups and pour out your life for other people. God has given you something for others. Find the joy. Find the joy of using it. Let's pray. Oh God, as we go, strengthen our faith. Sustain our faith. Grant that everyone would take this booklet with 52 small groups scattered around these cities and pray over it and lock in to some cluster of saints, all imperfect, all needing each other, because your grace flows through gifts. So Lord, glorify yourself now in our church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.